So if I asked you the question, what is fun, what would you say? I'm thinking about what I would say, and I'll say that meeting up with friends and singing our guts out in a private karaoke room is fun. Maybe playing a tabletop game with family is fun. Just having a banter with friends and laughing until my face hurts, that is very fun to me. But what we consider fun is subjective, incredibly varied. Tell me what fun means to you. Now, one thing I can imagine we all agree on about fun is that it would be nice to have more of it. And my next guest has gotten the art of having fun to an exact science. Yes, we're going to work out the kind of dissonance there. We will talk about that. He's even worked out how to have type one fun, type two fun, hard fun, and soft fun. And he's worked it out how to plan for fun in a way that is completely spontaneous. I'm totally intrigued. Dr. Mike Rucker is a behavioral scientist and organizational psychologist and author of a book called The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Mike, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about fun. I think children are really good at knowing the meaning of fun, but how do you define fun? Yeah, so I take a psychological approach. There's this kind of geeky word we have in psychology called valence, but it's really easy to understand. It essentially means are the activities you're engaging in pleasurable and are you drawn to them? Or negative valence, which means they kind of repel you and you're you know, they're agonizing. Yes. So that runs a spectrum. And, you know, fun is a really big tent. You, you paid homage to that at the beginning, right? You know, we have preferences based on arousal. Like for me, I love rock concerts and my wife tends to like low arousal fun, things like reading a good book, you know, poolside. So we all have those preferences. And then, you know, some of us have an extroverted slant and want to be around a lot of people and some have an introverted slant. So, you know, we have Again, fun is this very big tent, but we can all agree that, you know, we're enjoying the things that we're engaged in. What's happening in our brains when we're having fun? So there's a whole host of different things. Um, You know, there's this nice sort of neurochemistry of both dopamine and oxytocin, and those two together are really good playmates. I think, you know, one of the problems here in the modern world is sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking we're having fun, especially what we call passive leisure, like mindlessly scrolling social media uh, and things of that nature that, you know, are really just displacing discomfort or boredom. They're not necessarily things that light us up or, you know, lead to betterment. And so you have this nice, you know, neurochemical uh, cocktail. If fun activities, you know, sort of physical activities involved that can release endorphins that make us feel good. And then if it's something that you are skilled in, we can actually get in a flow state, which is this delicate dance between being really good at something, but then also finally finding that activity challenging. And there's a lot of research that's been shown that when we get into that state, so we sort of relinquish the brain from having to make sense of everything because we have an intimate relationship with that and intimate understanding, um, it can really, you know, be a fulfilling sort of way of spending our time. So there's a whole host of different benefits from having fun. Funny question. Does everyone like having fun, Mike? So I have found folks that 
don't necessarily value fun as an ideal. I certainly think that there is emerging science to suggest that folks that are kind of quote unquote fun starved don't understand that that leads to fairly negative physiological and psychological outcomes. But certainly there are folks that have a preference to, you know, completely um, finding value in productivity rather than sort of enjoying themselves. But the same way that we looked at sleep in the 90s, if you remember kind of how hustle culture was so prevalent then, and people would wear sleep deprivation as a badge of honor, you know, they would find more productivity by uh, essentially, um, you know, sacrificing sleep. And we quickly realized, you know, now we have decades of research to suggest how asinine that assertion is, right, to circumvent sleep for productivity, um, because essentially productivity will fall off a cliff, right? If you, you know, get in too big of a sleep deficit, you just can't be the best version of yourself. We're now seeing that same phenomena with leisure and fun. So folks that aren't at least taking a little bit off the table for themselves for enjoyment, and that can be within the realm of work, but for most people, it's a true transition ritual between work and their leisure time. For folks that are not finding any fun in their lives, there's generally a pretty direct line to future burnout, which has both physiological and psychological uh, negative outcomes. Do you think we're at a stage actually where we're almost becoming a bit competitive with how fun we can be? To <laughs> just with the rise of social media and, and posting about how fun our lives are, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting concept and certainly one that I unpack a little bit. I think if you look at fun as an act of mindfulness, so it's really an action orientation, and you're really just trying to enjoy where your feet are, it becomes sustainable. And certainly when you juxtapose it to happiness, which is really an exercise and evaluation, where you're always kind of looking in the rear view mirror, you know, for how you should feel, then you succumb to some of the pitfalls of happiness, which is the fact that you know, happiness is somewhat derived on how we compare ourselves to the social structures we're in, you know, on the social norms that we kind of have been brought up on. And then we also adapt to things if we're not, if we don't mindfully set the goalposts, right? There's a concept in psychology called the hedonic flexibility, or excuse me, the hedonic treadmill. And what we know is that, you know, even if we get a windfall or something, you know, quite extraordinary happens, we'll get used to that and we'll kind of search out for something new. But if you're always kind of looking you know, ahead and you're enjoying the things that you're doing, that's very sustainable. And that's where I see the difference. Okay, Dr. Mike, we have to get a bit wonky about fun because All right, you have a, it. let's do it. Let's <laughs> get into it, baby. Measurement of fun, the fun scale, type one fun, type two fun, type three fun. What is this all about? What does it mean? Yeah, so these aren't my ideas. I actually think quantifying um, happiness or fun is where things start to get problematic because if you think about happiness in a psychological context, right, we call it subjective well-being. And once you boil it down to a scale of zero to 10, right, what happens when you're kind of at a nine for for a long period of time and you get knocked off that pedestal and don't have the emotional flexibility to deal with the slings and arrows that are going to come naturally, right? And so I, I steer away from that. So one, two, three isn't necessarily quantifying fun per se, 
but it's an ode to the fact that some of the things that we do in life that are really challenging, especially type two fun, the way it was categorized by uh, Dr. Newberry, who's a professor at the University of Alaska. He was a geologist. So him and his friends were always doing sort of outdoor adventures. And so if you're climbing a big peak, right, and you're in the midst of this you know, really rigorous activity, you know, sweat dripping off your brow and your muscles are, you know, clenching up because, you know, it's just a very challenging um, climb. You're not necessarily going to say in that moment that it's fun, but when you look back at it for years to come, obviously it's this very joyous memory, Mm. especially if it was associated with pro-social behavior. So this idea of type one, type two, and type three fun really is an ode to the fact Um, And then I I use the term hard fun, which is essentially type two fun, um, because that's a different professor, Dr. Uh, Seymour Papper out of MIT, who just looked at it from a different slant. But these are just words to indicate that sometimes in the moment, if someone wants to ask us, hey, is this fun? You'd be like anything but. But then, you know, if it leads to mastering a new skill or some sort of challenge or something that you endured with friends, you know, like a marathon that, you know, maybe the last you know, mile 20 to 26, you wouldn't really think back of it like I was enjoying myself, but all the memories afterwards, the celebration, you know, after the finish line, the fact that you can savor in this, you know, monumentous achievement, all of these things produce an immense amount of fun, even though it wasn't fun in the moment. Okay, so I should not stress myself wondering in the moment whether I'm having hard fun, soft fun, type one, two, or three fun, should I? I should just let myself have some fun. Um, there's a fun text coming in on the text line. Someone says, fun is a long, brisk walk with my poochie. Uh, my, I love what, it. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it <laughs> seems very mundane, but to be able to find fun in that task, I think we can all relate. Mike, you know, having fun, studying fun, seems like a funny thing to make a career out of it. I am having a lot of fun saying the word fun right now with you. (laughs) How did you get here? Hopefully someone's playing a drinking game. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get here to the study of fun? Yeah, so I have studied happiness for quite some time. I'm a long story short, I'm a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. And for folks that might not know what that is, positive psychology is essentially just a facet of psychology that really got popular at the beginning of the millennium to look at psychology as a way for betterment, you know, for folks that really just wanted to use these tools to get happier. Because up until that point, psychology had really been a clinical mechanism to treat, you know, clinical deficits and poor mental hygiene. And so for about 20 years, we were really looking at happiness as this ideal but there's been an emerging sort of uh, validated by empirical research that conditioning people to be overly concerned with their happiness so that they're ruminating on what, you know that comparison trap that we talked about earlier mm. can become really problematic um, to the point that when you ruminate on sort of why am I why is happiness over here and I'm here one you're expending all this energy that you could be using to have fun but also as these scripts develop in your mind ultimately they become a self-fulfilling prophecy so we know subconsciously what will happen is you'll start to identify as an unhappy person even though you have the you know as long as you're not you don't have a biological predisposition to you know something like clinical depression you generally do have the agency and autonomy to shift 
your focus back to a bias towards fun. But if you get stuck in that rumination where you're like, you know, living in this good vibes only culture and um, don't have the emotional flexibility to kind of deal with things as they come, but know that you can, you know, get back to fun when it's appropriate. These can become really problematic so much so they can lead to things like depression and anxiety. And so that's where I got fascinated with it. This construct of why are we thinking about it so much when it could really be a more proactive approach to just focusing on the things that we really do enjoy. Let's not force the fun. Let's have fun while we're getting there fun it's the journey etc etc i've got to stop myself now i'm gonna to have to cancel myself <laughs> from the fun puns um your book is called the fun habit how the disciplined pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life i think there's an ine- inevitable question here mike about thinking of fun as a disciplined pursuit some might see that and think are you taking the fun out of fun <laughs> so much so that they drop discipline <laughs> so uh yeah that was the original title and then when it went to market they because um, you're exactly right. But there's this concept in behavioral science that when we're premeditated and pre-commit to doing the things that we enjoy, they actually get done. And what's happened, especially, you know, in cultures that live through a meritocracy, we've just always moved the goalposts, right? And we don't actualize the fact that we do need time for renewal. And so being disciplined about structuring your schedule so that you know when your workday ends and you're preserving time for the folks that you love, for the activities that you really enjoy so they actually get done, does become an important component of living a joyful life. As terrible as that sounds, but in the modern world where some of us are you know, still succumb to the Protestant work ethic, where the folks that you know are in this new knowledge work environment where we never really know when the day is done because we don't have quotas anymore like you know the days of algorithmic work and then the advent of things like smartphones and email where we can always be on if we want and these things allure us back right that gmail bing you know at 7 30 at night oh i you know i want to gotta turn off your notifications gotta turn off your notifications um mike If someone listening to this is thinking, I actually have a deficit of fun, I'm a bit worried that I'm not having enough fun now that I've listened to this interview, how would you introduce some baby steps to reclaiming the fun in your life? Yeah, so it is pretty easy. And it's just taking a look. There's only 168 hours in your week. And we habituate what we do a lot more than we think. So just looking back, I have a simple model called the play model. It's easy to find online. Just Google Rucker play model. And you can look at how you're spending those 168 hours within the context of are you having fun or are you not? And then looking for opportunities where you're not really enjoying the things that you're doing and you can take them out of your schedule. And then just being premeditated about what are some things that you want to try. Some people already have top of mind, like, you know, I always wanted to get back to dancing, right? Or I would like to engage with my loved ones more, like my grandkids down the street, I don't get to see them enough. Or I have some really fun friends and I just haven't reached out to them, you know, post pandemic. So it's reintegrating these things back into your life, but first finding what has kind of filled the void. And for a lot of us, you know, when we look at the health meters on our phone, you know, we're like, uh, you know, I just don't have the time. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, I spend four hours a week on Instagram, Mm. you know? And so, yes, again, it, it, 
it sounds so simple, but it really just takes that exercise of one or two hours of being mindful of how you're spending your time and then being proactive, again, that word deliberate, right? About being a little bit premeditated of making sure you schedule those things in so that they happen. Because so often as busy adults, we're like, oh, I would love to do that, right? Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Mike, we have to leave it there, but I have to say it has been very fun speaking to you. Dr. Mike Rucker is a behavioral scientist and organizational psychologist and author of The Fun Habit. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.